Hello everyone and welcome to Future Talk with myself, Harry Moy and Sam Kluska. Today we're going to be asking the question, will culture impede technology change? Sam, this was something that you wrote on our website, futurofidelis.co.uk. So if you'd be able to begin. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great topic. You know, I, I really enjoyed writing about it. Um, it. It did kind of, it kind of blurred the lines, I guess, a little bit like when I was writing it and I was trying to really stick to the point of, um, you know, culture impeding technological change, but I, really there's a lot of things that could, could impede it. But um, yeah, man, it's, uh, there's a, there's a lot that I sort of went into uh, stuff about like history of it. Um, so like stuff like nuclear technology, that was a big one back in the day, obviously um, after World War II. Um, and also examples of when um, technological change wasn't impeded and how it wasn't impeded. So like it was always under a motive and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, like we should probably just get into it, I guess. Yeah, I thought the the parallels that you made to World War Two and to the Cold War were quite interesting because it almost felt as though it is it's been through kind of conflict that technology progress has happened. I mean, obviously, the Cold War itself didn't really turn into anything apart from a, a few proxy wars here and there, but nothing between the between the United States and Soviet Russia. Yeah, and like for, for those that haven't seen the or read the article, yeah, it was kind of basically talking about the notion of technological change can happen and it can happen fast if there is a underlying tone of well, it's to squash a threat. So within World War Two and the Cold War, there was obviously a imminent threat to the public. So there was very little like backlash particularly with world war ii because that was more of an imminent like it's on your doorstep threat i don't think there was i don't so, think sorry when you say backlash what do you mean by backlash as in the citizens themselves having a backlash against the technology change that's happening yeah yeah which um i think is is really one of the the biggest points of how culture does impede technological change and i um uh, later on in the article, I referred to sort of like defining what culture is. And I came to a point of like, culture is just basically normality, a normal way of life. I'm not really thinking artsy stuff, although we will get into that. But yeah, just a normal way of life. So um, I think uh, when I was talking about, yeah, backlash, it is about like hu- like civilization pushing back on governments and private companies pushing through changes in technology that they disagree with. And I don't think there was there was much of that really for World War Two, because it was about an imminent threat that was on their doorstep. So you know, you're, you're getting bombed by the Luftwaffe, you're gonna, you're gonna put your all your trust in the people that are fighting back on the people that are trying to essentially kill you. So there was a lot of like technological advancement that happened um, during sort of World War One, World War Two, particularly World War Two, that kind of now, we still have we still have the ripple effects of them in modern yeah. day so nuclear aviation um, submarines stuff like that and you see that data is going to be the is the big one at the moment or at least in terms of privacy and i think that's quite interesting because there is this argument that we are in fact in a new cold war and the battlefield is sort of loosely put is cyberspace and we're we're all on the front line of this and yet yeah it seems like it's it's the governments are almost rather than weaponizing data they're trying to do what they can to safeguard and to protect it yeah it's um it is interesting isn't it i think 
there, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. You know, you look at like the Novichok case and like different little acts of interest. Um, and obviously the, it's all kind of being driven. Like the main, the main bulk of things is done through technology. So, I mean, that's kind of like one, one tangent of it, I guess. And that in itself has, has paved way for technological advances, just not on the scale that we have seen in sort of the, the past. Um, so for, for the article, we were trying to look at how, it's, how, how, techn- how technology has progressed in the past. How does it progress now in the present? And then what do we foresee in the future? Um, so I think the future is where it gets really interesting, right? And we'll get onto that. But uh, the, the past was really just contextualizing our world today. And yeah, the, the, the main thing about the past was, that at least the main point that I wanted to touch upon was sort of like nuclear um, weaponization, although it can be used for um, green energy effectively. Uh, basically, there, there wasn't, there didn't seem like there was much pushback for, you know, the Manhattan Project where it was about sort of squashing a threat, like the Japanese would refuse to surrender basically. And there, there was no sort of seemingly other option um, but there was no, there was no real public outcry to say like, hold on, what are you guys doing? Like, this is ridiculous. We're going to sort of kill millions of innocent people. And that, that, you know, those effects are still like felt today and, and not thankfully after those two not another one has been dropped afterwards. But I feel like it requires a greater amount of people to push back and say, look, we can't start normalizing nuclear weapons against mm. each other. Like there's, there's stuff like that. But was the wasn't there an anti-nuclear sentiment a bit in the sixties, sort of in, across the kind of counterculture movement? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think I don't know if it was because of well, it must have been because of World War Two, but I didn't really research further beyond like the World Wars and to see if there was any sort of like regular protesting against technology. Like, were they protesting against the first car or, or anything like that? Um, but for, for sure, like. The impact that that had on the entire world almost like woke up civilization to to sort of have a bit more of a say in in these technologies that are going through. Like once the dust had settled, it kind of became a point of like, right, we need to really like push back. And yeah, there was a there was a lot of protests. Um, the big one that I that I mentioned in the article was a protest in New York, which like had a, over a million people attend, uh, and and that's kind of resulted specifically for nuclear. This that this resulted in nuclear power station shutdowns. Um, I think also like Hiroshima, the, um, sorry, not Hiroshima, Chernobyl, the, the Chernobyl accident, that kind of did spark a, a lot of interest again, because again, that's affecting such a wide amount of people in terms of population. And I think that was one of the notions was to shut down those uh, old, inefficient and dangerous power plants. Um, so stuff like that, where there's a People that aren't directly involved in nuclear, just civilians, have the the capability of really challenging those that have the power and the sway and the technology to make a difference. Yeah, because I suppose with 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 Chernobyl, it was probably the first time that people really begun to understand the consequences of just radiation being in the environment, because yeah. the only real previous time that it was it was scene was in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that would have been at a time when the spread of information would have been quite difficult so the the side effects of radiation people weren't aware of that 
Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the, the brilliant Sky Atlantic program for uh, Chernobyl, but yes, yeah, it is really good. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the firefighters attend the scene, and and there's no real process about sort of radiation poisoning. They don't understand what's happening to them in a way that the doctors didn't really seem to, at least they portrayed it that way. They didn't know what happened to them. So uh, yeah, I think like it has been a learning process and it has been, I kind of alluded to the fact like, you know, the age of information, people becoming, as I think you made a great point, like people are becoming more aware. It's easier to share information about when things are good, but it's also the same to share information about when things are bad and, and when to act on it. And also like the ability to group people together using the internet and um, that kind of in turn relates to physical uh, interactions and and protests happening. Yeah and with with nuclear as well when looking at the past you had Robert Oppenheimer who was the, the sort of the architect behind the Manhattan Project and when it was when the, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki he really realized you know what he had led the first real weapon of mass destruction ever made and subsequently in interviews he described his experience where he quoted from the Bhagavad Gita uh, where he said I am become death destroyer of worlds Hmm. and that is how he felt but because of that expression of guilt really this was also the time of uh, Joseph McCarthy who was a American politician who basically said Anyone that expresses any kind of guilt or sympathy about what happened in World War II is a, is a communist. Really? And yeah, and so Oppenheimer was lost his sort of a security clearance and was considered to be a communist. So I think that also contributed to some of the the, the disquiet about, sorry, the, the quiet about nuclear weapons because the people that were raising the alarms were being called communists. Yeah, and I guess maybe for the government, they had to keep the message strong that, you know, that the whole reason the whole project existed was to squash a threat. So when that dust is settled and you have remorse, you really, as a government, you have to show face that, yes, we did the right thing. We had to have the Manhattan Project be successful in order for us to win the war. Mm. But, you know, you, you, won't, you won't get that kind of, uh, what, like, what happened, what, what if moment where we never dropped the bombs would the war with Japan have, you know, stretched out over another two, three years? And, you know, we just want to get the Americans home. Um, it's uh, it's just one of them, isn't it? But it's it's kind of baffling to me because they did do tests, didn't they? So they knew the power of the bomb. So it's kind of surprising that when they eventually dropped it, then they went, or, you know, the creator goes, oh, crap, sort of thing. It's just, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's strange. I guess but they're supposed to didn't test it on real people. No. <laughs> yeah. So when you see, sort of see the absolute devastation of life that that it caused. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but that, it's a great example for how culture doesn't impede technological change because there is an undertone of like, well, we need to get this done for X, Y, Z reason that everyone can get behind because it, it directly affects them. Like they feel like if they don't get that across, then they might die essentially. So it's like the biggest threat. And so I suppose coming into the present day, and I think it's this is an argument that's happening in the present, but it's one that's going to really happen in the future. And it's a, and I think this is a debate that we're not going to hear. It's not going to stop for for a while, which is about what I think would be fair to say is 
kind of nuclear weapon of today, I mean, obviously we've got nuclear weapons, but artificial intelligence and what that can be turned into. Yeah, and I think obviously Elon's expressed his worries and, and the need for a, a governing body. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it is an interesting point. I think like it is, you're right in saying that it has the same destructive capabilities as nuclear weapons, but it's a bit more discreet. So yeah, a general general computer attacks like we we really can't understand the the effects that they can have physically as well. You know, a lot of our infrastructure and stuff is driven by computers. So if you take that away, I think there's been hacks like that against certain countries that are documented, and we've like they've uh, ruined supply chains and really started to starve a country just through computers. So it's. It's definitely integrating AI into that only really bolsters the the threat. Yeah, and I think I think the point that you make about it being discreet is is really key there, because you've got this deep fake technology that's becoming a thing of people being able to build sort of videos that that look real of people doing whatever and saying whatever. Yeah, and when you apply that into political context that can be really dangerous because that could cause an election to be won or lost because a deep fake could be created with um you know with with joe biden or donald trump or whomever saying something that they didn't say and then when you pair that with the just the general toxicity that we're seeing now and bots with hundreds of thousands of followers that are then able to circulate that 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 information and once it's in on the internet it's, it's on the internet yeah and and i really like that point because that isn't what you would consider like your traditional hack it's not like what you see on on the movies it's it's a really subtle social engineering type of hack and it's uh it's all driven yeah it's all driven by bots that's the funniest thing and I've been seeing the the Tom Cruise one recently, and like if I if if it didn't come with the caption to say like oh, this deep deep fake is scary, I didn't I didn't really know otherwise. I was thinking, oh Tom Cruise can do a magic trick, like fair play to him. So it's uh, it's interesting that the world we're going into, and and that's kind of something I touched upon when talking about the present day, is sort of technological change moving faster than regulation can keep up with it, which is what we've seen with sort of Facebook and you know the the overly memed Mark Zuckerberg taking a sip from a glass, but the actual hearing itself was kind of embarrassing to listen to because you have yeah. essentially boomers not realizing the the extent of the damage caused and, and what really is going on behind the scenes with the advert recommendations and stuff like that. And Mark trying to desperately sort of like, explain it in a very vague way but enough for them to sort of just like nod their heads and go okay yeah i mean i think one of them didn't even entirely understand facebook's business model of selling ads yeah he was sort of wondering how are you free while you're not a paid product and mark zuckerberg i think he just responded with senator we sell ads <laughs> yeah. and people you know that that went all over twitter and it just went viral because it really showed how it's out of touch, how out of touch politicians are. And it's the, the regulation does have to be very reactive, but 
you wonder whether it becomes a bit too extreme as a consequence of it being reactive. So is is the GDPR, so, you know, the sort of the seminal data protection regulation that I think is going to be the the framework for regulation across the world. We're seeing it with California. California's got its own data protection law. I can't what it's called. I think it's CCPA or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's very much modelled on GDPR. But GDPR is this really broad, really strict, really difficult to be compliant with yeah, piece of regulation. Yeah. And part of me wonders, is that because it, it is very reactive? So like an uh, like an overcompensation, is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 And I guess like that's just kind of human nature, isn't it? When when something terrible happens and then in a in a in a reactive way you sort of react strongly or too strongly against it. And uh I think that's that's kind of the issue that we've had, I think, with the past is has been a reactive thing. The nuclear bomb was dropped and then sixties, seventies, there's a reaction to it. And now we're seeing it today with with the data and the political sway that's happened in America, and then there's been a huge reaction to it. It's it's really about in a in a non intrusive way trying to embed regulations and control. Although you know control is a powerful word, but in the process of a company building something that could be seen as dangerous. So I, th- I think we're we're becoming a more more aware of these things. So like AI is very heavily in the know as being potentially dangerous um, to at least anyone that's in the industry understands that. And that, you know, there are, there are bodies out there, technical bodies now that are talking about AI, but I don't know if they have any power to control direction of a project that is handling AI. Yeah. AI is, a, AI is, is an interesting one for me because politically there is a vacuum when when discussing artificial intelligence, at least in the United Kingdom. So if you look at the way Parliament has responded to to artificial intelligence, there was a white paper done, I think it was a few years ago. When I, when I say a white paper, a report that was done in sort of an inquiry into artificial intelligence that was done by the House of Lords. Okay. And the House of Lords is an unelected body in the United Kingdom, which is typically old people who are given life peerages uh-huh. and <laughs> you, you sound like you should be a member of it <laughs> and it just feels odd that it's this what you would expect to be sort of the boomer chamber <laughs> is, are the ones that have done the report and have done the inquiry into artificial intelligence and it just it seems to me like there's not there's not enough investigation being performed into it yeah I mean, that's scary. and It's kind of maddening as well. But, you know, the security professionals and, and new tech professionals, they they charge a lot of money. So I'm, I am kind of cautious, like, well, maybe there's just no room in the budget or they, they think there's no room in the budget because it's not priority to implement these things. But again, we might come to the point in 2030, 2040, where we go, shit, we should have had something proactive, a technical hit squad, as it was, to keep these regulations and keep in the know about what's coming well with with the inquiries you get summoned before parliament and if you get summoned it's it's against the law not to Mm. not to turn up and they they'll just be asking questions and people be there as as experts but yeah it it just feels like there needs to be 
And it makes me wonder whether there needs to be almost a, a minister, you know, an actual member of a cabinet that is looking at artificial intelligence because of the, the overall consequences, because we're only at the early stage, really, as well. Like we talk about being, about being reactive with, with data, but I think the, the longer that we wait with artificial intelligence, the more dangerous it becomes. Yeah, yeah. And really, like trying to draw it back to sort of will culture and Peter, I think it's, it's really as well that that's kind of the regulation side of things. I'm now thinking more of like, well, how does it affect every everyday people, the, the normal lives? AI is a bit of a funny one because obviously, as we've said, it's quite discreet. It's quite subtle. I think the general civilian wouldn't recognize that it's AI driving their their changes in their life. So that one's a little bit trickier to to really see well, how will there be pushback against AI if there will be any at all. It's It's very broad as well, the term AI. Yeah. Because... To some degree, do we just mean algorithms? You know, is is the Netflix recommendation system is that an AI? Well, yeah, it's 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 a it's a bit of a buzzword, isn't it? Really, because I mean, as well, like it's it's in Tesla cars, it's in self driving cars. So, are we going to talk about really uh, self driving cars over automation uh, AI? Sorry, or like because when when we talk about AI, as you said, it's very broad. But that doesn't really have a direct impact on somebody's life. But a self-driving car does, and it, it could impact mm. people's jobs. So that's kind of like, I guess, where if we think of AI as like the umbrella technology enabling all of these more disruptive technologies to normal life and our culture as we know it, I think that's kind of why it's, it should have so much focus. So what aspect of culture do you see being the thing that causes the most friction for te- technological change? Do you see it as being the... A matter of employment so in the sense of self-driving cars or do you think it's concerns around things like privacy kind of uh yeah i think i think employment really i think i kind of mentioned in the in the article that like there, there's pushback at every turn right so yes uh, companies can introduce technology and they can essentially like cut out a large portion of the market um, but there, there is there is pushback like we, we've seen it with Uber in in London, whereby you know the black cab of London is is part of like London culture and well British culture as well. Black cabs aren't only um, solely in London, and obviously there's there's there was fight back against Uber. So like that's just one example of, I guess, a threat against London culture and also traditional black cab drivers who refuse to basically work for Uber because of like I guess the employment rights and stuff, which I think are changing right now, aren't they? But that that's one example. And, and and if you think that's not even a big scale, that's just London. So I think what Tesla are trying to achieve with like automated, um, sorry, not automated, self-driving HGVs and stuff like that, that affects a lot, a lot of people and it's global as well. So you can think of like Eddie Stobart, the amount of people that work for that company, just all being told, well, sorry, guys, we, we don't need any of you. I think they're, you know, the strength in numbers. So if you're trying to disrupt a lot of people all at once in like the click of a finger, essentially, I think, yeah, you're going to really face some strong pushback and it is going to be hard for you to, to progress your, your technology. And do you think that the culture that is accepting of technology is the one that succeeds. And what I mean by that is, you know, there, there is, I think when you said like British culture, you know, that, that's a culture, that's the attitudes of the people of the UK. And that is not 
hugely different to say American culture, but it is different. We've sort of got Western culture as being quite a broad sort of cultural norms that we have across the West. And then you've got, you know, Eastern culture and all the various subcultures in there, Indian culture, Chinese culture, Japanese culture, what have you. Do, do you see that the the culture that is the most accepting of the technology change, the one that kind of succeeds is perhaps the one that becomes the most economically advanced in the future? Like put it this way, they have they surely have the most to gain by doing it. But I, I can respect that it is a risk. And we actually see that right now in, in cryptocurrency and like the the naivety to jump in with two feet and really like grab the ball by the horns. So I think like it's just took like 2017 to now, we still haven't got a properly fully fledged CBDC anywhere in, in, in the world. I mean, like China are starting to progress their own uh, cryptocurrency and it's it's worrying right and now now that as you said like and sorry cbdc being a digital currency so a, a national currency that is digitized yeah so i think trying to have a lot to gain by being the first and having it integrated and i i can understand why because it's such a central part of the normal way of life right like traditional fiat so i think it's hard for people to commit to to change and like i did mention sort of about the future like Everyone says they're ready for change, but really, like, put your money where your mouth is. I think it's not, even, you know, you have it in CVs like, oh, well, you know, I'm adaptive to change. But really, I, I mentioned, like, if, if you had a developer and you ripped out his entire tech stack and said, oh, I want you to, to use these languages now in this database, I want you to do NoSQL instead of SQL or something like that, they wouldn't be happy. And, and I think that kind of cascades all the way up to, like, infrastructure level. So, but going back to your question, yeah, I think... Those that are willing to change and have the agility to be able to change quickly to these modern technologies um, have a lot to gain. But there is a risk that, you know, they could fall through. There might be security flaws with blockchain that we don't know about. I mean, there probably isn't, but certain things like that, which I, I believe are blockers in the way of changing the way that we live in a sort of agile, fast way. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I think it was only last week or the week before, was 50 years since decimalization in the United Kingdom. So previously uh, we had decimalization. Yeah. So previously we had six pennies to a shilling and 12 shillings to a pound and six pounds to a conquer and just oh, right, granddad. This, this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't even know if any of that's right, but <laughs> but then, but I was, as part of the 50 year celebration, I suppose, or the 50 year anniversary, they were showing clips of people talking about decimalization and just the sheer panic that they really? had at the thought of no longer will they, the system as they know it is, is changing, the monetary system as they know it is changing. And yet the world didn't stop, the world didn't end, yeah. life carried on. And so sometimes I do wonder whether there is a big fear around technology and around technology change. I mean, I, I suppose that wasn't a technology change, but it was a, a big, big change. And sometimes it feels like it ends up being all for nothing. The big hoo-ha and the big worry. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, that happens in our own daily lives as well, doesn't it? Where you're scared of a change happening, but you you go through it. But I think it's even... It's, it, it's even more recognizable when it's people in power that are scared of a change, particularly if the change threatens their power. And I think that's that's where it gets really interesting. So I think that's a big topic with cryptocurrency is, is they're talking about sort of the wealth shift and the, you know, the, the bajillion conspiracy theories out there about them trying to like push that down and, and really prepare 
prepare for the well shift or like fight it in a way. Um, that's that's kind of it's kind of like it's it's all speculation, isn't it? It's all it's all in the air with that stuff. But the stuff that we can really sort of dial in on and go, well, we can see how that's going to impact the everyday people. And I really think that those are the people that are going to be the ones that are pushing back. So like the future tech stuff is is the, the bit where we could talk forever. And like the one I really like is, I mentioned this to my tattoo artist like uh, before COVID. We were talking about um, like a an automated tattoo artist, like a robot that would just scan your PNG of what you wanted on your your leg. And the robot would just scan your leg so it got the, the shape correct. And then like just just blast away at it basically i can imagine that'd be a bit painful if it just started blasting away just the robot doesn't understand the pain that you're feeling just <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it would it, but the, the thing with it right is it would actually probably still need some sort of human um carer to like to monitor you but it doesn't require somebody skilled like it doesn't require an artist yeah. you know that you're going to get a picture perfect tattoo every time and I guess when people think about this title, like will culture impede technology, te- technology change? I think they probably do think of art straight away, but like, bam, there's a, there's an example. Like how accepting would people be for a tattoo artist that was a robot? And it did, it did art better than any human could ever do every time. I think you would have pushback of like, oh man, but it's, it's all about the artist and the human and mistakes, you know, mistakes in the art. It's all about it. Like, so that's actually what's just come through my head as like yeah. a genuine thought for me. So that, that mocking voice is me. Yeah. But like, maybe it's because I sit on the outside of art and I just think, man, I, like I'm paying for a service, which is a good tattoo. Like people choose a, a tattoo artist because they are good at tattooing. So like, if you're thinking really objectively, like, isn't that all you want? Just the tattoo that is fast, accurate, yeah, so and maybe cheaper? In in that situation, there isn't so much the creativity behind it. Mm. Although it's a tattoo artist, it's a bit like when we've had conversations about, like, the the robotic bricklayer. Yeah. It's, in, in a, the, in the a tattoo way. artist isn't so much starting from a... A blank canvas. I mean, the the skin being the blank canvas. What I mean is, is they don't have any reference material. Right, right. And uh, I guess maybe, maybe the majority. In, you go in and say, you go in and say, I want this, but you don't go in and say, well, I'm. I mean, I've, I'm, I haven't had tattoos, so I imagine you go in with with it and say, this is what I want. Uh, You're not well, saying, I, I have an idea of this. Yeah. And then they do that for you. I think majority cases, yeah. I mean, me personally, I just kind of go, whatever you want to do, like, I'm not too bothered. But for sure, I think a a huge majority, they aren't really bothered about the art. They're not really asking the artist to dig deep into their mind and come up with the wackiest, like, craziest stuff. Um, It's like nobody's going to be doing, I don't know, cubism on your leg or something like that anytime soon it's 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 the usual tattoo stuff so but that's the thing like how much pushback would we see against that technology would it come to the point where even though it was a great piece of technology and it was perfect every time would it have a business case would they be able to sell it 
I don't I know. Think they, I think they probably would to some level. Some, some people are trying it, yeah, for sure. The thing is, but it's then, like... Sorry. I was just going to say, like, the same, the same as Uber, right? Like, they were offering a service which was much better than a black cab. You understood how much you were paying. You knew where it was in terms of, like, where the taxi was in proportion to you. You could just book ahead in time, like all of those things that improve the the service to the customer. Those things would exist with a robot that was performing a tattoo. It'd be faster, no time for breaks, unless you wanted a break yourself. Um, It would probably be cheaper because you're only literally paying for the ink and not not the person's time. It's just a robot. You could really work 24 hours if you wanted to. Just stuff like that. Yeah. But then I wonder about the other types of art. So your music, um, you know, music's music's a really interesting one because um, I'm I I quite like hip hop music, like sort of electronic music as well. And my parents, who are from a previous era of of sort of the eighties and the seventies, the eighties, they hear the music that I listen to and they don't believe that it's music because it's not real instruments that are being played. Mm. But when I, I think with Daft Punk recently announcing their retirement, I saw a thing on Twitter, which was kind of how they created the sort of the main beat behind uh, One More Time. And it is them sampling from another track, but the ear that you have to have to be able to hear the sounds within that track to then slice and then produce into the sample is just, you know, you, you have to have some sort of a, a level of genius to be able to hear that and turn that into sound. You, I do yeah, wonder whether, hmm. I do wonder whether an AI would be able to, to do that. Yeah. And, and like, I'm trying to think when you were talking about uh, your parents not believing that your music you listened to was was real music, wouldn't that be the case for whoever was like programming the AI? Wouldn't there be some sort of bias towards a specific type of music, perhaps, if it was like a, a genre agnostic AI that created music? I think I think it could get I think it could pass in certain situations. Like I was thinking that it could replicate us like a Daft Punk song by simply listening to the entire discography of Daft Punk tunes and then just going, oh, okay, I'll just make something similar like that, no problem. Surely it would be able to do that. Yeah. I wouldn't mind if it if it did that now that Daft Punk are retired. <laughs> quite like some some new music from them since they retired about eight years after their last album dropped. <laughs> yeah. At least at least retire on a new album or something. Yeah, yeah, go out with a bang. But then but. there's there's a, a, a there's a bit of a cultural change happening at the moment, and this is this is quite relevant to now, which is March twenty twenty, which is NFTs, because people are putting art and they are putting it onto the blockchain, yeah. and you are seeing it being sold for a lot of money, and there are people like us who understand the technology and I think we both think it's it's quite cool the fact that this technology is being used in this way but then you've got the people that are seeing this and are going what the hell 
like how are people yeah. spending this much money i mean i was talking to to talk to my dad about it at the weekend because of his arts and crafts room that he's just set up and I, and uh and i was saying to him well you need some computers in there so that you can do some nfts <laughs> yeah and like well that that's the thing is is it going to bring uh you would have like art that was created by an ai and then you'd have a art that was created by a human would the human art just be more valuable stuff like that i think is is quite interesting the nft stuff it has a great use case it has a, a many great use use cases i think uh you know you were talking about the deep fake stuff a way to prove a video is from a correct source is by using nfts yeah so i think there's going to be like a amalgamation of technologies new technologies coming together to sort of maybe squash some of these um issues that are going to get raised with the introduction of these technologies so i think there's always going to be solutions um is it though that these solutions will keep up with the questions and the problems that get raised with these new technologies though but what i mean though is more the just just the nfts themselves so looking past artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. but just the way nfts i think are going to change artistic culture because we're used to at least with i'm going to keep with sort of the example of music music started with sort of old media discs you know your cassettes and then your cds and what have you and then eventually itunes came about and now, and then Spotify came about, and now everything's being streamed. Yeah. And that is convenient for us as consumers because we pay like £10 a month and we can listen to all the music that we want. And the culture's really pushed, pushed for that model because it's, a, it's convenience. But then there's the argument that actually it's not very beneficial to the creators of the, of the content and that's why things like live music is, is becoming so critical financially for, for artists hmm. because they don't get money from streaming services. And I guess the, what I'm wondering is whether NFTs are potentially going to be this next generation of, of, of music whereby artists sell the music as NFTs. And, ha- and if they do that, how accepting will people be of them doing that? Yeah, and I guess it's interesting what you mentioned about sort of streaming. I feel like streaming was almost introduced to try and be an answer for piracy because the convenience is ultimately enough for some for some yep. people that were pirating to just go, oh, I can't be asked to be on uh, uTorrent or Pirate Bay anymore. I just, I'm happy to pay a subscription as long as I can get all the music that I, I want. And I believe that's kind of how that technology was pushed through for artists to go, look, we can, we can solve piracy. Like you're getting zero money for your music right now. It's, it's spreading on the internet like wildfire and for free. We can offer you a portion of money for the amount of listens that you get. But clearly, as, as you said, like it's not really beneficial anymore. Like it's, it's, it's kind of worked out that they're not getting as much money as they probably were in, in the past with CD sales. So I think, yeah, I think, there will be a, a large portion of people really fighting for the use of NFTs in sort of, I guess, like copywriting art, uh, copywriting their music and squashing the ability to freely distribute their their, their tunes. But I, I don't see why there would be pushback on that, though, personally. 
because I think that's just a good thing, right? Uh, the only reason I could see it being a pushback is if it starts eating into streaming. I think a lot of people love streaming. Yeah, so that's that's my thought is that it it eats into streaming. It almost becomes encounter to streaming. Right, so we kind of go back to the iTunes store again, like Apple Music. We go back in time. We're yeah, in the iTunes but this store is now. potentially better for the artist as well because the likelihood is, is they could get a much larger cut. So financially, it's it might end up being better for them. And when I say a larger cut is in against something like iTunes. So yeah. I'm not entirely sure what the licensing arrangement was, but I imagine that when a sale was made on iTunes, Apple probably took 10, 20% because it's Apple. Yeah. With NFTs, they've got an opportunity to get a significantly large amount of that. There will be trans- some transaction fees because it's a blockchain and there needs to be the transaction fees to make the transaction happen. But it would probably be better for a content creator, for an artist to be putting it onto the blockchain. Yeah. So but that, that's the thing though. Like the artists are in this case, the smaller ratio, the people that are going to have the sway and the power are ultimately the consumer, I would have thought. So I just, I, I'm scared of this kind of like, we have this lovely centralized platform. It's not very beneficial for the artists and I'm sorry, but I have this wicked centralized platform that I can use for all of my music. I could almost foresee a way in the future whereby record labels are setting up their own, I don't know, like D app front end where you can buy the record labels music or the artists that have the music. And, and then it's kind of like, well, I have no sort of like centralized collation of, of my music anymore. And I have to go to all these different like blockchain networks that they've decided to go on in order to sort of purchase music. It's just going to become a, an absolute hassle. I mean, it could go any way, but that's just what I'm thinking. I could sincerely see it going that way. I think yeah. that it's, I think it's something that we are, that we've already sort of seen in television where we had this centralized system in the idea of like cable. Yeah. What, what, what Americans call cable, we call, pretty much just call it sky. <laughs> and satellite yeah. and people are moving away from that and now you've got netflix and you've got disney plus and you've got all four and you've got prime video and you've got all these various services and there's a bit with this that's better over satellite because well i can pick and choose what i want i'm not just paying a fixed fee each month and getting content that i'm only watching 20 percent of but then there's the argument where actually if I'm watching most of the content that was on the satellite and that's now moved to these various streaming services and I have to get all of them, I'm now paying more money. And that's the way I could see it potentially going for for music. We sort of had that with Taylor Swift only being on Apple Music for a, a while because of the yeah. proceeds situation with Spotify. Kanye West releasing the life of Pablo exclusively to Tidal for a brief period of time. It's it's sort of gone there a bit, but I don't think there's been enough content working like that to really draw to really draw people into having to subscribe to both Spotify or Apple Music, whereas people would spot would subscribe to Prime Video and Netflix. Yeah. So I could uh, see eventually yeah. it goes towards the record companies because they've got this collection of content it's not just one particular artist but they've got a pool of content that people will be drawn to yeah 
Yeah. And it's whilst you were talking and you mentioned the whole like video streaming and subscription issue, and I'm calling it an issue because I kind of feel like it's one of these events again, which is going to be a reactive thing whereby, okay, say we do go to a decentralized music industry in terms of the consumer has to go to all these different sources. Maybe it'll come to a point where suddenly people start to realize, oh my God, like the average of like 50% of the population has 10 subscriptions and 25%, 30% of the subscriptions they don't use. So like there's this kind of like mass pushback of people are just throwing money away to these companies and they're not even using their services. And I think it may like the, the, the whole, the whole thing around blame is interesting, I think, because with these things, it'll be like, there'll be, there'll be a body of people that say it's not their fault for people having these subscriptions that are essentially being wasted. I think there'll be a, a notion of people that say, really, it should be up to the companies themselves to really start checking up on if, if I'm using the content that I'm subscribed to and trying to protect the consumer away from just throwing cash away when they're, they're already like tight for money. Stuff like that, I think, that that might happen, that might see a way in, in the way we consume or choose to have these subscriptions. Does that come back to the point of will culture and P technology though? Probably not. But it's just it's just one of those examples of a potential pushback. But it's reactive again. It's not a proactive thing. Well I think it is a, I think it is related to culture and P and technology change though. Because I think it is a it is a technology change. Although it's not something that is as significant as say artificial intelligence i think the true the dawn of video streaming has been quite big i think it's something that has only really been enabled because of the quality that of, of broadband and the speed of broadband speeds that we're now seeing you know this things like netflix things like prime video would have been possible in the, in the, in the early 2000s pre-fiber because the speeds weren't there and i'd say that has then driven a change i think that culturally people had satellite and then netflix came along and think people began to see actually maybe i don't need satellite anymore or things like tv the tv license so in the in the united kingdom you have to pay a tv license so you have to pay uh, i think it's about 100 something pounds a year and that pays for pretty much pays for the bbc uh, and pays for a bit of i think it pays for a bit of channel four as well it's the law you have to have it if you watch the BBC or if you watch any live broadcast. But now there is a a really large argument around the TV licence and whether people should have the TV licence. And I reckon that's mostly been driven by this switch to streaming that's happened because people are saying, well, why do I need to pay for a TV licence? I don't even have a, a traditional TV. I don't have an aerial anymore. Yeah. Because I don't need one because I just watch Netflix and I'm what I'm not watching a live broadcast with Netflix. Yeah, it's a good point. I just think so. Sort of well, why we've been talking? I mean, in the article I mentioned that in in it, it, the the way culture either impedes or doesn't impede te- technological change is really surrounding the context of it. And the more we talk, I, the the more I think. So yes, like video streaming did come in, but like. Did we all really notice it? Like, did we, did anyone really go, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. I feel like it just kind of happened. And I'm really starting to wonder if like technology like that just kind of creeps in and it just kind of happens until maybe there's a, there's a cataclysmic point where something unethical happens with it or something bad happens with it that then we go, oh crap. And then we start trying to push back on it before it's like, whilst it's too late. What could you see that being? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I'm just thinking with the TV license thing, like we're, we're all paying for it, but we're, st- we're paying for subscriptions at the same time. I always feel like this 
is is kind of late. Like we should have stopped paying for the TV license years ago. Like there's not there's not that many people that really consume BBC. They probably only use Amazon Prime and Netflix and don't even bother having Freeview set up or terrestrial TV. Yes, we're all paying for it. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, isn't it? I guess it's almost like the original, the OG subscriber, but it's just mandated, which I, I you know, I bet Netflix would love to have. Yeah. What, so, well into you, BBC. It's it's an interesting topic for sure, and and like uh, kind of moving away from that, like there's there's a lot of stuff coming that are less subtle, more in your face. And Neuronet is a great a great example, and I love the talk on um, the Joe Rogan podcast with Elon Musk and sort of Joe talks about, well, isn't Euronet going to be expensive? And he's like, well, yeah, probably initially. And he said, well, so somebody with buying power has the, has the ability to buy something that ultimately makes them a more superior being to those that don't have the money. And that's, that's like such a powerful that's question. Scary. To me. That's really yeah. scary. Yeah. It's such a powerful question because hypothetically speaking, right? Let's say, let's say the, the, the regulations are too slow. I mean, this is, this is such an in your face thing. Like we're drilling holes in heads and stuff. I'm pretty sure there would be regulation, but let's say there's still an oversight and there's a reactive change later on down the line. It's already too late. And our culture would have changed so vast, like on, on a vast scale. And in, in that case, it would leave so many people behind and in the dust. I think those sort of those sort of technological changes are really where it's affecting normal life in such a way on such a scale that there there probably we will see a lot of pushback. And I, I'll be very impressed if if Elon sort of gets it beyond the fact of we're trying to just remobilize disabled people. But it's 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 prophesized in Deus Ex, like Deus Ex Human Revolution. That's, uh, really? yeah, I mean, that's that sort of augmentations and people fighting against the augmentations. And it's, it's, it's very much like that. You've got the people that are really against this idea of humans being augmented and sort of yeah. treating them as being subhuman for that. But I guess the question is, are they subhuman or are they like double human? <laughs> <laughs> Doubling down on the human. I don't know. Yeah, it's... It's interesting. I think um, I think it might actually become a point where we do slowly lose our grip on tradition and culture, and like we become used to normal, ever changing. As sort of a, the the rate of technology goes beyond sort of, I guess we've spoke about it in the past. Sort of technology has kind of slowed down in its innovation recently. But does that mean that we're going to then see a, another huge surge, which will only be more impactful to us than? you know, the introduction of the internet and smartphones and all the unethical things that have come with that. I think perhaps there will be a point where culture no longer has any any pu- like pulling power in slowing down technology. And we just sort of like, we're running full steam ahead until something really catastrophic goes wrong. Yeah, and I think with culture, no matter what it is, if there's change, then there's going to be a really big debate around it. Yeah, yeah, which is exciting, I think, because that's, that's kind of like it impacts you and me. It impacts everybody. I think they're the, they're the most exciting technologies. So I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned.